this is uh, This is Joe Cole. This is Ruben off the cheek, and you're listening to the London, London is Blue, Blue podcast. podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode. That's right, the London is Blue podcast, and this is our very first emergency pod of the Todd Bowley ownership era of Chelsea for the men's team. That's right. If you need any salt to harvest, just go visit an Arsenal supporter because they are so salty at the fact that Rafinha from Leeds is going to be joining Chelsea after a wonderful and bit of shocking news uh, in the Premier League over the past, I would say, 12-ish hours because it was a midday uh, U.S. afternoon activity that kind of evolved into uh, the late afternoon here in the U.S. But we are going to get into all the specifics, why to be excited, why to maybe have question marks, and what is going on, and maybe still continue to poke a little or a lot of fun at Arsenal supporters during this episode while celebrating our incoming player of Rafinha. But, uh, yeah, we're going to do that. Uh, just me from the normal crew here, but you loved him so much. In the earlier part of the week, we had to bring him back. It's Sam uh, at CFC Central uh, 3 just joining us to uh, chat about the newest addition to Tuchel's, uh, Tuchel's team. Hello, good morning. I mean, good morning from, from India, but uh, <laughs> so, so happy to return so quickly. And uh, really, really excited for this, to be honest. Uh, didn't see this coming. I, neither of us saw this coming, to be honest. We were looking elsewhere, but pleasant surprise. And I think it's going to be a pretty cracking signing if you get things right. Oof. Well, we are going to get into all of it here. But uh, look, I mean, let's just set the stage. Todd Bowley's Showtime Blues have gazumped. Yes, gazump is finally back at the menu, back on the menu at Chelsea FC. And they did it over Arsenal while securing the services of the Brazilian from Leeds. With him also spurring or spurning advances from Spurs and Tottenham. And I mean, just in terms of a things you can do to endear yourself to Chelsea supporters in making your way to the club, I don't know what else Rafinha could have done, Sam, before making this switch to making a bit of a pivot. But he kind of ticked all the boxes in terms of fan bases to just really. I don't know, a front in some way before becoming Chelsea. Like, it feels like he's been made for Chelsea just because of that. Absolutely. I think being Brazilian, he's entered the Villian Hall of Fame and, and <laughs> done the right thing. So, <laughs> antagonized Spurs, then he's gone to Arsenal, absolutely mugged that up. I mean, certified legend in the making already, I would say. Uh, I love it. Well, hey, just a couple quick thanks. We want to thank uh, Josh IE from the UK for a wonderful five-star view and Apple podcast, as well as W O L O L O L O L O L from the US uh, on Spotify, 4.9 stars at uh, 1.1K reviews. Uh, let's catch ESPN FC. They're at 1.15. I'd love to do that. And I uh, thank you to Matthew and Alex for joining us on Patreon. Look, there's a lot of stuff about the summer tour, but we've done tons of pods about that. So go back and listen to that. But hey, we're going to break down the fact again that Rafinha is coming to Chelsea. And look, it was only the 25th of June when David Orenstein tweeted, Arsenal to intensify efforts next week to sign Rafinha from Leeds. More talks planned with the 25-year-old camps and increased offer expected. Feeling among other suitors is AFC now leading, and he's said to be open to joining them. And then 10 hours ago, which would be 10 hours on today, the 28th, exclusive! Chelsea close to agreeing to feed north of £55 million with Leeds for Rafinha, but not done yet. CFC now best poised with Leeds and the 25-year-old as long-term favorites. Barcelona can't afford it at present, and Arsenal not currently at the required price. And look, 
Then you had a couple of Fabrizio Romano tweets drop. You had Matt Law drop it. As I mentioned it on TikTok, it was the holy trinity of transfer gurus saying that everything was heading in the right direction for Chelsea. We know from Matt Law that personal terms should not be an issue with Deco, uh, you know, former blue there, uh, on deck to help his uh, a, you know, help his player be supported and making that deal official. But just in general, the winding road over the past 48 to 72 hours, Sam, as you saw this evolve, particularly with the links to Dembele and the whole waiting game with the contract coming down to the wire there the 30th of June, not knowing what was going to happen there. It feels like this is just a knock-on effect of not really figuring out what the deal was going to be with Dembele, knowing you had a couple of options and making really a smart signing for a Premier League proven player. I think it is, um, like you mentioned, sort of a, a Game of Thrones kind of situation where you just try negotiating and, and figuring out what the best options are. Realistically, we might be losing three attackers. Ziyech on his way to AC Milan. Um, Timo might be on his way to Juve if we get the lick. And of course, Lukaku is is on his way back to, to Inter. So if you're losing three attackers, realistically, we should be looking at bringing three back. And uh, when I look at Rafinha, probably considering that um, Dembele is becoming a free agent uh, in a couple of days or maybe tomorrow. So maybe that deal could still happen. But Probably Arsenal were advancing quicker than anybody thought they would. And uh, it just felt like a good deal to jump in and hijack it. And and the fact that we also had Deco sort of playing left field first. So I think it works out in a way that we might still get one of the other attackers as a, as a third option. Um, but we're really, really happy that we're doing uh, business ruthlessly. You know, we're jumping in and we're going hard, which is great to see. Yeah, the rumors of Chelsea's demise under new ownership, under American ownership, have clearly been overreported. As I think one tweet from an Arsenal supporter talked about, could we go back under sanctions? Is that a thing that can be resurrected in this moment to stop a new Chelsea flush with cash and ready to reinforce Thomas Tuchel heading into another season? But I know, Sam, you pulled a couple of stats here that you wanted to share uh, just over the last couple of seasons, particularly the last two that he's been at the Premier League. And what what caught your eye and what what should people be underlining in terms of the things if you're saying, hey, Here's the stats that have me excited and maybe drawing the conclusion of like what that stat tells you about Rafinha as a player in the Premier League. I think the biggest, um, I would say, perception of, of Rafinha is that he's uh, a one, 1v1 you know, winger who can hug the touchline, who can try beat his players and figure out things to do after that. But what excites me about him tremendously is, is that he is... More, closer to a to a Juan Mata, if I can be say that without being very scandalous, he's he's a wide playmaker, and uh, he creates a lot of chances over the last two seasons. We were just discussing before the pod, double digits in big chances created, and he has an a higher expected uh, assists than any of our attackers last season. So, tends to be a good chance creator. Uh, with leads, I would say it's it's a little bit of a distortion because leads always play like they're two goals down. So he tends to sort of be a little more chaotic when he's trying to play there. But when he's playing for Brazil with players like Neymar, with players like Coutinho, Lucas Paqueta, Anthony, and all these guys, tends to be more conservative, tends to be more smarter with his passing, tends to be better with his movement. So I think one of the scouts or anybody in the recruitment uh, 
department has sort of looked at that and said, look, he's performing better and being more level-headed when he's in a possession-based side, when he's at Brazil. So let's try and get in here and see if he can replicate that form. Yeah, very interesting there. As you talk about it, you know, one of the things that we know is Stanford Bridge's pitch can be <laughs> is not the largest in the Premier League relative to others. And if you're looking at adding a Sterling as potentially a forward wide playmaker as well on the left, having Rafinha potentially on the, the right, do you think or potentially perceive that this could be a way for Tuchel to augment the width of the attack that tends to go a little too narrow or was too narrow last season? Absolutely. I think in terms of somebody who's happy to hug the touchline, be extremely wide when receiving, opens up a world of possibilities, allows Reese James to also make those inverted runs towards the box. And we've seen the kind of damage Reese James does. I mean, you remember the Norwich goal, you remember the one, the, the absolute hammer that he scored against Juventus as well. So, um, you know, excellent in terms of trying to offer positional rotations. I was watching a couple of games for Brazil as well, and he tends to do those positional pinging uh, with with a lot of Brazilian players as well. You know, when you've got Emerson Royal, who plays on on the fullback, he tends to go inside. If you've got Gabriel Jesus, who drops from, uh, who drifts from centre forward onto the right hand side, then you've got Rafinha, who actually ends up somewhere around centre forward. So, pretty interesting positional sort of wisdom that he he utilizes there, and I think that that could be. Um, a great to have in our side somebody who's just a conventional touch winger. There are other stats also that sort of suggest something interesting to me. He tends to a lot less touches inside the box than than other like other attackers in our side. Timo and and Pulisic and all tends to do a lot of damage from outside the box. So something to look forward to there as well. Well, let's kind of dig into those elements here, the reasons to be excited. I wrote down a couple. You put down a couple as well. I think one of the things that probably has me most excited is at Leeds, he had to be the guy last season. And you talk about a season where Bielsa was sacked, Marsh comes in, a little bit of a change in the way that they played. And often, more often than not, he had to be the singular focal point. I almost think back to some of the seasons where Eden Hazard was here, and he really was it for the attack. And if he wasn't having a good game, Chelsea weren't having a good game. And similarly, at points this season, particularly as we saw Leeds almost get relegated, which would have been great, would have made a potentially a cheaper deal for Rafinha. Maybe this would have never happened. We never recorded this episode. But they did stay up. They were able to command a different fee, and he now gets an opportunity to be one of the guys, and so the onus on him to be the sole playmaker, the sole performer, not saying that we're not hoping he doesn't want to do all of those things and carry the load for the team, but he can at least distribute that amongst the other players he's in the front line with, and I don't know where your thoughts are on that, Sam, but I feel like that's going to really open up different facets of his game, where if someone's looking at Leeds highlights where he had to be doing everything to think about who he could be combining with, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later, I think that's an exciting prospect as well. Spot on. In terms of being, say, a system independent player, somebody who functions just on his position, it doesn't rely on who he play, who's playing with or who he's playing against. You give him the ball and, and on the right-hand side and you watch him do his magic. So, 
pretty similar to Hazard in his way. Like it doesn't matter which formation you're playing or who you've got supporting him at at wing back or full back. He sort of does everything on his own. Like you mentioned at Leeds, he was the focal point for something to happen out of nothing. And when you have somebody who's positionally independent, then you tend to create a better avenue. But obviously, if you're surrounding him with better players, like if, for example, you're surrounding him with Raheem Sterling, who's going to be offering those amazing far post runs, great movement into the box. You've got Kai Havertz who can drop all sorts of places, you know, make those one-twos with him. I think there's an exciting array of possibilities that opens up. But the best thing about him is something that you highlighted absolutely well, is that he's positionally independent. You can just give him the ball and make him do anything. And he, and he does it on his own. He doesn't need an ecosystem to thrive in. One of the things that you also called out in some of the notes we have here in our script was just the 1v1 prowess that he has and what that's going to do from like a chance creation. What are your thoughts on what that is going to, A, why that has you excited, and B, how do you think that's going to look here at Chelsea? Well, we discussed in the last spot with Dembele and, and Sterling, just somebody to offer that 1v1, somebody to offer a psychological edge, you know, some some kind of problem inside the defender's head to think, I can't take two or three instances more of this. He offers that. He offers that completely. Just in terms of coming up against his fullback and, and beating him with, with these amazing feints and body movements, he's got those things in his locker tends to actually deliver pretty well when he gets into the right position. So, I'm pretty encouraged by it. He also tends to have a very high shot creating action number. So, he does get into the right positions and and he keeps his head up. He's not a Salomon Kalu who always looks down and tries to beat people and then go to the byline and just cross into the right area. He actually looks up, makes sure that he's seen the right option and he picks them out at the edge of the box or somewhere else. So, in terms of having a winger who can actually create shots from from the right positions without getting into the box as often as the other attackers i think is a is a great advantage to have as well yeah i mean all of that speaks to uh, a player that you want to have i know that when we i kind of looked at this also and you know one of the things that you might kind of th- expect from him as a player that you know the dribble success rate might be higher than I thought it was. I thought that was maybe a little surprising. Um, last season, 59 out of 149, so success rate of just uh, just under 40%. Does that surprise you, or is that something you're wondering about why that is? Or what's the what would you say the reason that is for him and his game? I was also crunching those numbers, and I was looking at it. Uh, he's, he's dribbling less since his Ren days, and it's been dropping since the time he was at Ligue 1. So he's come down to, I think, around four dribbles a game. And his stats sort of reflect the same kind of numbers even at Brazil. He's, he's doing somewhere around, I think, 39-40% of dribbles. But when I look at it in terms of a larger sample size, he tends to be in the higher 40s or in the 50s. So maybe a one-season aberration, I'm not sure. Maybe he's just trying to dribble less. It's creating some kind of uncertainty in his head. Maybe he's been told not to do it as often trying to create better chances, trying to sort of use the ball better, I would say. But uh, would do worry, to be honest. He still looks very good. Um, saw his games in, in the World Cup qualifiers and, and he still looks like he's very shelf-assured. You know, he's, he's got all the confidence in the world to pull out whatever he wants to. So, wouldn't worry about it too much. 
Yeah, I mean, you think about other players in Chelsea's lineup in terms of players, what they have performed on last season. I mean, attacking players like Callum Hudson-Odoi, uh, lower volume, obviously, 30 total attempted, 19 succeeded with 63.3%. Then you look at someone like Mason Mount, uh, who you know only attempted 46, succeeded at 22. He had 47.8. Uh, you know, so it may not be on him the same way it is on some of those other players from a, a dribble perspective, but it's good to kind of understand uh, from the way that he's playing why that's that's generating that that element there. You made one other mention as we were getting prepared for this that you wanted to talk about a particular attacking option, a way that Thomas Tuchel might be thinking about Rafinha maybe adding a little bit of a an extra attacker to attack, I guess would be the way that I would think about it. I, I completely agree there. I think the way Thomas Tuchel might explain this to Rafinha is that the wing-back position isn't just a defensive position, it's more of a second winger position. You know, you have an auxiliary winger who's utilizing that space to create certain attacking threat. And when I look at Rafinha's defensive numbers or the way he defends, it's a it's a severely underrated aspect of his game. He's excellent at tracking runs. He's always switched on defensively. You know, he makes 60-yard sprints back from his own box to make sure that whoever it is in the free man in the counter-attack, he's got that person covered severely underrated aspect of his game. So if you can convince him to say, look, this wing-back position isn't really a defensive position. This is actually a chance to get you to play against another winger, Reese James, as well as yourself. So maybe it's going to be a trio, Reese James from right centre-back, another winger and Rafinha on the right-hand side creates a lot of trouble. I think that is a that is a pretty good tactical tweak that, that Tuchel could look at. It's been mentioned in the press as well. I don't know if he'll be open to it, but it, he can be convinced. He definitely can be convinced that it's it's somewhat similar. Because when I look at Reese James's numbers from wingbacks, tends to take about four touches, three and a half touches in in the attacking penalty area. Rafinha tends to take about similar ones. He's got a lower touch volume, but in terms of being involved, I think I think it could be good. I, I'd still have to see whether he can adapt to passing as much as Reese James does from from wingback because. He tends to take 90 touches while Rafinha is somewhere around 40 to 50. So that's another 30 touches to make up. If he can do that, then could be a great option and then saves you 10 million from Jonathan Klaus. Then you can look at Livramento or somebody else in the 2023 season if it doesn't work out over the next season. You know, when you kind of mentioned that, I, I was looking back at his defensive metrics as well, and particularly like blocks and how he was looking at the number of times that he blocked a shot um, by, you know, either standing in the path or kind of like blocking a pass by standing in its path. Um, he was third overall in leads for the number of blocks that he achieved over last season. And then he actually was number one for pass blocks that he kind of picked up there too. So I think. When you mentioned about the underrated side of his defensive game, I I will say I was super surprised uh, having not watched a ton of leads other than the match where we uh, smattered them um, and we're going to send them down in person. That caught me a little by surprise, but as you talk about it, I guess with the way that they were having to get back, the way they were not always playing with possession, uh, I mean, they, uh, you know, were not as possession heavy as they had been in previous seasons. I, I guess that makes more sense. It is sort of also the Bielsa effect. He is he's brutal in terms of how he trains you to make sure that you're man marking. So 
one great effect that I think has had a impact on Rafinha's game because most wingers, when you look at them, they tend to always look at getting the ball into the right areas. But if you have a winger who can get into the right areas without the ball, for me, that's a massive plus. Mm-hmm. Somebody who can offer that, who, somebody who instead of attacking the ball, attacks the space is a great asset to have. And Elsa's leads, the ability to make those third man runs, he's not worried about the ball. He's just running into a channel. He's just running into space because it's there. Shows me that he's evolved just from being a normal winger to somebody who understands and interprets space as well. So great, great uh, impact to have, great influence to have in terms of a wing position. That excites me as well. It's it's a multifaceted profile, like you mentioned. He's not a one-trick pony. Even though he likes playing on the right-hand side, he offers a lot from them. I think another thing I liked is just the types of teams he was scoring against last season. Uh, a bit of a diversity there as well. We think about the fact he scored against West Ham uh, very early in the season. He was able to score, uh, unsurprisingly, against Chelsea at a certain point in the season. He was able to put him past Arsenal, give him past United. And so when you're thinking about his understanding of the Premier League, his ability to score against uh, some of the larger teams and a few teams that uh, don't know how to sign a player and uh, let the, another rival pick them up. Um, generally, all very positive things to to see when you're thinking about the profile of an attacker who there may be, and we can get into this in a second too, you may feel there's an overpay, but if you know someone can do it in the Premier League and you're just saying, can you do it the Premier League at a different level, that feels like it's less of a like a actual risk, and you're more paying a premium because you you actually someone's already done the due diligence and the homework for you. True, I, I would say that it's similar to the concerns that I have that we were linked with Lyson Bremer to be uh, about a couple of months ago as the centre back target. When I looked at him playing at Torino, you could tell that he was defensively excellent, but how does he play on the ball? Can he play in a system where he's you know, used to taking more touches, where he has to recycle the ball better, when he has to use the ball better, utilize his long passing, not for clearing, but for picking out people in the attacking third. I didn't have a sample to go by. I couldn't look at his Brazil games because he's uncapped. But when I look at Rafinha, I see a better sample size. I can I can go to those games. I can see that he plays completely differently in terms of how his vision changes, in terms of how his link-up changes. Just comparing his national team stats as well as his uh, domestic stats. I mean, Leeds, for example, last season, his pass percentage was 69%. Uh, for Brazil, in the World Cup qualifiers, it's 86%. It's a huge rise. It's a major, major rise. He tends to lose the ball around 20 times per game, playing for Leeds, 18 times the season before. For Brazil, this time in the World Cup qualifiers, 12. So, loses the ball less, uh, tends to use it better, tends to be more respectful of the players he's playing with. When you're playing with a Neymar, when you're playing with those guys, you have to understand you're not the sole focal point. So he has that understanding. I completely think that that's an indication, that's a, that's a positive indication that playing with the kind of players we have, he will adapt his game and bring out the best in it. Oof. All things be excited. I think the last point that you wanted to get on before we take a quick break is just going to be that he adds dead ball activity as well in terms of set pieces and corners, which you know, if you lose someone like a Marcus Alonso um, and maybe potentially losing other players, this is something you're going to want to have in the tool set of the players that you put out into your 11 and helps Thomas Tuchel maybe even improve 
on our dead ball opportunities. True. And we, we're losing like two left-footed set-piece takers. We're losing Ziyech, we're losing Alonso. So on that left-hand side, if you've got somebody to make the right kind of deliveries, I would trust him. I would definitely trust him. Even on corners, uh, Mount tends to take the outswinging corners from the right-hand side. But if you have, if you want an in-swinging option, then obviously this guy is, is up there. He tends to deliver very well. I think that's an important facet. So he will be there. He's a good penalty taker as well. He's taken, I think, three for Leeds last season, if I'm not wrong. One against Edward Mendy, and he scored that. He's also got that Jorginho hop-skip weight and then place it on the other side. So if you've got the ability to add a penalty taker, to add a free-kick taker, to add a corner taker, I'd take that all day. Oh, nothing but excitement there. But let's dig into a couple of the reasons that we might be concerned or things that are just little bit of a head scratcher that we want to start to think about uh, from a thought piece perspective but before we do that we're going to do a quick break and we want to thank these sponsors for financially supporting the show we'll be right back all right so it's not all roses there's no perfect player there's no perfect player even though they play for chelsea let's just put that out there uh there's definitely not a perfect player if they play for arsenal or spurs yeah all hope is gone there but when it comes to rafinha what are some of the top concerns that you have, Sam? I know you listed a couple here. Where do you want to start and what would be the primary concern that you have? Uh, tough to say where I'd like to start, but let's just start with this crossing. I don't think his crossing is as good as it should be for a winger. He is an inverted winger. He is, again, an, an inverted playmaker. But when I when I compare him to a Juan Mata, I think you've got to be competent with the with the quality of deliveries and the variety of deliveries that you that you put in and Mata had excellent deliveries and and this guy tends to struggle a little bit again i most of the games that i've seen are for leads and it's just making the quick yard and crossing it and then seeing what happens so he tends to be a little more chaotic with it but cross completion numbers 11% that is Branislav Ivanovic numbers in in like probably his poorest season for us as a as a right back but uh, probably he can he can improve there. He tends to be very wasteful um, in that. And when you look at his possession loss numbers, I think it results from his poor crossing. Somebody who's very gung ho and tends to try and deliver the you know the attacking the adventurous pass, but doesn't quite execute it as well. So maybe that's something to look at. Again, I don't think it's a major worry because when I look at him for his national team, he tends to be more composed. So maybe Tuchel just has to tell him, look, look, don't do it as often. <laughs> try to keep the ball and try to make sure that you create more with your runs, with your dribbles, and leave the crossing to these James. You know, just just do what you can with without the ball, make those runs, get into the right places, and we'll see from that. So that's that's one of the worries. Crossing would be definitely one of the worries. I think another worry, and this is something that we had talked about in our special when we looked at a couple of different attackers, is some of the fluid this idea of a very fluid front three where the players could interchange quite heavily when you look at where he was most successful last season in matches where he had a goal or an assist only one of those was there any type of logged duration or sorry two matches out of the 11 matches or 11 goals that he scored last season where it indicated that he had positionally resided in the kind of left mid or left wing range and that was against crystal palace and against newcastle uh didn't get a chance to dig into if those goals were scored from the left hand side or him playing left or not but in general he loves playing on the right hand side and so 
you can just pencil him in, playing on the right, most likely staying on the right, and doesn't offer some of that additional positional flexibility in relation to some of the other targets that we were considering. Spot on again. I, I feel when you compare him to a Sterling or Dembele who can run both flanks, who offer a mixed bag of, of what they can in terms of threats on, on either flank, I think he doesn't really have that kind of a great profile on the left-hand side. Again, when you're a left-footed winger on the left flank, then your crossing tends to be your greatest asset. And unfortunately, his crossing is his weak asset. So on the left, he doesn't really offer as much. He did have one assist, I don't know against who, but uh, maybe against Palace, I'm not sure. I, but uh, he, he put a nice ball in and, and somebody just stretched a leg out and got a goal. But in terms of creating the same kind of havoc that, that he does from the right-hand side, even from the centre, um, not quite there. He's he's more positionally similar to Ziyech, somebody who likes holding a right-sided position, a wide position, and likes coming in, getting into those central areas. But left can be improved, weaker foot threat. What can he provide from the left-hand side that sort of balances his threat, sort of makes him more effective? Not quite there yet, but at 25, maybe a couple of years, if he can develop that, then why not? You know, we, we did talk about his high-risk passing and how he's maybe adapted a little bit differently at Brazil. The other point that you kind of put out there into the universe is uh, we now would have a very short right-hand side with Reese James at 5'10"-ish and then Rafinha at 5'9". And maybe they're not, you know, not as tall, but then also not as airily dominant as well, uh, either for kind of trying to win balls uh, up or down the pitch or uh, in terms of, you know, playing in the box uh, on like a corner or a set piece. Um, Where is your concern level with that? With Reese James, I'm not concerned because in terms (laughs) of, I I look at him, I look at him very similar to as, as somebody like a Kunde who even at his height, with his strength, you're not you're not bullying him out of the ball. You know, you're not doing anything to him when he leaps with you. You just you might as well just say I shouldn't have jumped in the first place. So not worried about reshames. With Rafinha, yes, uh, aerial percentage somewhere around the forty percent, I think, Mark, in terms of aerial duels. On the shorter side, five nine. So uh, again, a little bit of a worry. But and again, if you look at the front line that we might have next season. Except Kai Havertz, I don't see anybody who's great at heading the ball or who's great at winning those those headers in the box. So, can you utilize, say, if a Dembele comes tomorrow, can you utilize his crossing? Can you utilize those those lovely crosses from Reese James that he puts in, you know, when you don't have a Lukaku? Havertz has shown last season that he's willing to adapt in terms of getting those headers in. He scored a couple of beautiful headers, but... Other than that lone focal point, I don't think we have somebody who can who can offer that aerial threat. So, in in terms of the smaller picture, not worried. In terms of the larger picture, yes, I don't think we are aerially competent enough. I think it's the same problem Barcelona had with their defense. PK Mascherano, you know, in their golden generation, just short guys were not that great in the air. So, I think it's the same with our attack. Uh, and then the last one, which uh, look, we, we can get into it, we can discuss it here because this is going to be the common argument that Arsenal supporters are going to make that they they didn't overpay. Many people are saying this. Many people are saying this, Sam, that Arsenal weren't going to get drawn into a bidding war. They weren't going to overpay for the player. They knew the appropriate value. We've overspent. Todd Bowley doesn't know how to spend his money. Wasn't an overpay. 
interesting contextual analysis i would say because <laughs> when 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 arsenal look at when arsenal look at rafinha uh, they look at somebody who's probably offering secondary that at a position they're already strong in they've got bukayo saka so when they look at him they're like can we pay 60 million for a guy when we've already got saka who's arguably you know as good if not better in that position so if you're going to pay 60 million for somebody who's dominant on the right hand side maybe an overkill so they said we're going to step back you're not going to pay that much for us we're missing that one v one presence we're missing somebody on the right hand side if ziash leaves we're missing a lot of the profile that rafinha brings so in case when it comes to us i think it's logical for us to pay a little bit more and say yes i think this is a profile a lucrative profile a pl proven profile and this is a first choice starter he's not going to be rotating with a bukayo saka he's going to start you're not going to pay 60 million for you know a bench option unless you're pep guardiola so um definitely i don't think we've i think we've slightly overpaid in terms of where i would value him i would probably keep him around 40 45 but then you look at say richarlison when he was at watford he was valued at 40 million so i think we've done pretty well not too bad yeah i think what I wouldn't necessarily worry about the overpay. And I think people are trying to do the math at home on, well, I heard there's a war chest. I've heard there's a war chest that Todd Bowley has a literal chest of money that he pulls it out from and takes out of the 200 million, the 65, and just shoots it across a table to Leeds and they pack it up in some bags and they drive it back home. And that is not how this works at all. Like it is a bouncing of the books exercise plus an injection of capital funds that are going to help secure these signatures. So when you think about it, it is a plus and minuses game where if we start selling some players, if we start moving two things off the books, it's the uh, amortized wage, which is the yearly amount of a transfer fee over the lifetime of the contract. So let's just you know take it very simply. If it was 100 million pounds over four years, it's 25 million pounds a year that are reflective on the book that goes against the profit and loss statement that Chelsea has to bounce to not, uh, not run into or run afoul of financial fair play issues. The other one is the player wages, which we have many players in this side currently who have a wage that I imagine will be far and above what Rafinha is going to make here at Chelsea and getting some of those wages for players who are second choice off of the books or potentially not likely to be here beyond one more year, that's going to give us the freedom where that $65 million is going to actually start to get reduced down in terms of a total expenditure as it relates to on the book this year. And so any other thoughts that you want to add on that one, Sam? I think in general, I just like to always make the case of how this is a accounting exercise and not a simple math exercise. Well, I, I I think you've uh, completely gone the right direction because when I look at his wages, I think he's on sixty three thousand a week at Leeds, and even if he were to double his salary, I mean he's somewhere around one twenty, which is as much as a Hudson Odoi, which is again like you say in terms of a bookkeeping exercise, it's a great option to have, even with his amortized value. If you if you're paying fifty five plus whatever add ons over a five year contract, that's ten million a year. It's it's pretty high but it isn't as bad as say a sterling for 45 plus probably 325 in wages so like you said it a cost effective option somebody who offers great maneuverability in on the books i believe it's a it's a good deal all right well that's uh 
you know, not only good players, but good deals. Todd Bowley just trying to get it done. I think the cool thing that I also wanted to kind of just cover quickly is what does the attack look like now? I drew up some couple options. If you sign a Sterling, is it a Sterling Havertz or Finia? Is it a Mount Havertz or Finia? Is it even a Pulisic Havertz or Finia? And what that gives Tuchel in terms of some additional flexibility, and I kind of brought this up earlier too, this idea that we're adding more width to the attack than we had last season, not allowing ourselves to be so narrow. Obviously, the return of Reese James and Ben Chilwell are going to supercharge the width that we can generate in this attack. But I'm just thinking now about the overlapping runs on the left and the right and the ability to play the ball in. I think... I don't know. I feel like Thomas Tuchel has to be super excited about adding a player of this profile into his team and really what he's going to be able to do across the attack. Where do you think, where do you forecast or see this taking place or taking root? What what kind of element are you picking up on here? I'm looking at tactical flexibility and the way Brazil sort of set up in their attack versus how we set up in our attack. Now, when, when Brazil play, they've got Gabriel Jesus, they've got Neymar, they've got Roberto Firmino. So all three options, typically, I wouldn't call a pure centre-forward. They're guys who like either dropping deep or they like drifting out wide. Jesus, for example, likes going on the right-hand side and he allows Rafinha to come inside. It's the same system, I believe, that will suit Rafinha here. When you've got Kai Havertz, he's, he has drifted left, but he prefers drifting right. So somebody who can come to the right-hand side, open up that central space for, for runs from on the left wing or from Rafinha, I think it, it offers great tactic, tactical flexibility. When you look at the second option, we might have Raheem Sterling. Also somebody who, when he plays in those central positions, like drifting out and arriving in that central zone, he's not going to be in and around the box looking for those runs. So when I look at those two systems, I believe he's he's amply placed. He's, he's absolutely adequately placed to capitalize on positional movements, to have a center forward who isn't static, who isn't going to cramp up the box and, you know, occupy spaces. If it was Lukaku, I would be a little worried, but having a forward who can offer that, I'm going to drop away from the central area, open up spaces, let, let me make sure that you can make those runs inside. I It's... It's a nice blueprint to have. It's it's a very good blueprint in terms of a proven blueprint for Rafini. And then the last question I had was just, you know, you talked about this positional flexibility. And I think it ties into this here. I think for me, the first thing I saw when it was Rafinha and not Dembele, I kind of got the vibe of, oh, not 3-4-3, three, 4-3-3, four, three, four, three, three, four back defenders, maybe over the traditional back three that Chelsea have played effectively since Thomas Tuchel has come in outside of some occasional experimentation like Tuchel, you know, in his jazz phase. Sam, I know you listed a couple of thoughts on where you think this goes, but do you see this as a broader shift to a back four, particularly some of the center back names we've been linked with? Or is, again, it just more flexibility across uh, kind of all facets of the the players and formations that Tuchel can put onto the pitch? When I looked at, when we, I was discussing thoughts with you in terms of the ideal formation, the first thing that popped into my mind was the same formation that he used against Spurs. It was a 4-2-2-2 and in defense, it became a 3-5-2. So 3-5-2 or a 3-4-3. And Hakim Ziyech, who was playing as, as the right attacking midfielder, would drop as the right wing back in, in defensive phases. 
So when I'm looking at a hybrid formation that allows you to attack with a four and allows you to defend with a three or a five, could be the ideal way to go. It is something that Rafinha would be comfortable at with his defense, defensive industry. He tends to press very well. I think he has 17 or 18 pressures a game. Very aggressive defensively. Able to play also a right wing position, or a, a right midfield position as well as a deeper position. Would suit him very well. With a 4-3-3, I wouldn't want to commit as of now because I don't know what that balance is going to be in that three-man midfield. Who's going to be the deepest lying uh, midfielder? Is it again going to be Jorginho? If it is, then how do we protect him in a back four? And uh, what are the two other eights going to be? Is it going to be a Kante Kovacic? Is it going to be a Kante Mount? Is it going to be Gallagher, for example, or Gilmore coming in? I don't understand the, the dynamics just yet. I don't really understand what the balance is going to be there. So I would be hesitant to go 4-3-3. But with a proven formation, with with a role that is optimal for him, I would say a hybrid formation. Somebody, something that allows you to attack in a four and defend in a five. Oh, these are all things to be excited about. And maybe as we round out this episode, a are there any final thoughts that you have, Sam, on the inclusion of Rafinha that we didn't get into? And what was your favorite? meme joke statement from an arsenal tottenham or any other supporter uh who got a little upset by seeing chelsea just move uh ruthlessly and swiftly through the transfer market to get this done i think the best meme was somebody said that he looked at the first uh release of the amazon documentary and after and he said i'm going chelsea bro i'm not i'm not heading out here so perfectly thought out i think in terms of where he needs to go for UCL football, um, a very promising project. He's made the right decision. I'm very excited by him. He's, again, Samba football at the bridge. Again, after a long, long time, it's, it's something that I'm definitely looking forward to. Um, one of those talents that, again, you love watching, somebody who can make you go ooh and ah and, and at the edge of your seat. I think Rafinha offers that. He's young, PL proven, PL proven over two seasons. So, very excited. I think he offers a lot that we're missing and excited to see what Tuchel does with him. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a... I mean, look, I'm going to echo some Nick Verlaney here. I think he's good, a bit of a bastard and bastard cover coding. And I think he can add a little bit of edge, a little bit of steel in addition to some of the attacking flair that he is going to inject into the side and what he gives Thomas Tuchel in terms of some of the flexibility. I think there's a knock-on effect to what this means for other attackers that we will get into in an absolute another episode. I love the fact that you called out the Amazon documentary one. I think it was Patty Power and it was said that he, he watched the first 10 seconds and uh, after the 10 seconds he had to <laughs> uh, <laughs> revert his decision, which, uh, you know, look, look. Um, you, you made the right thing. Uh, look, I, I just wanted to say thank you so much. Thank you, Arsenal, for doing all of the homework for us, for every one of your Welcome to Arsenal Rafinha videos that I was able to watch today and get caught up to speed, continuing to do all the dirty work to get it ready for Chelsea to come in and get it done quickly. So thank you again, Arsenal supporters. We super appreciate it. Sam, we appreciate you coming in as well, getting on this early. And uh, this, uh, I will tell the listeners, this isn't the last time you'll be on, but uh, you know, just remind them where they find your wonderful work too. 
Um, so you can find me on CFC Central 3 on Twitter. Three, one, and two are imposters. Actually, I own the number one, but uh, my account got suspended. So I am the imposter at number one as well. But CFC Central 3 is the handle. And uh, hopefully you can find a lot of my work on London Blue Pod in the future as well. So thank you so much, Dan, for having me on. Oh, it is our pleasure. And that's going to do it, Chelsea fans. Maybe another emergency pod this week. Who knows? Todd Bowley is moving faster than many of us might have thought. Uh, I know it took a while to get here, but we did. We arrived and we did it in style. So look, enjoy the Todd Bowley Showtime Blues. And until next time, Chelsea fans, you are to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.